The IAB presents the Simplify and Inspire podcast. How do we make it simple? Try to stop a lot of the buzzwords. A chance to change the way a whole industry works. For more information, visit iabaustralia.com.au. Hello and welcome to the IAB Simplify and Inspire podcast. I'm joined today by Tim Whitfield from Group M. Good morning, VJ. How are you going, mate? I'm going good. It's good to see you. So we're here under this new banner of Simplify and Inspire. And before we get into the Tim story, I just want to kick off with um, a little story of my own. Went to the cinema last night to see a film I've been gagging to see for some time, uh, Hidden Figures. Um, if you don't know it, it's about the three black American female scientists who played a fundamental role of uh, getting Americans into space and to the moon. My favourite quote from that film was um, from the character played by Kevin Costner, who said, at NASA, we all pee the same colour. Mm. And there's something about strength and diversity. And then getting, maybe this is slightly technical, they had to calculate the point at which it went from, a, the spacecraft went from a hyperbolic orbit into a parabolic orbit. But what was fascinating is they said, that math doesn't exist. We need to create new math for that. And actually, the story was, I went back and found old math to solve the problem. And something that I'm particularly excited about is even as we're advancing, there's incredible value in mm. going backwards to, to looking forwards. So just a quick story to, to, to get us going and thinking about simplicity and, and inspiration. I love that movie. It was fantastic. I've seen it as well. And uh, as I'm sure you know, VJ, uh, that um, JFK went out there when he said, look, I'm going to put a man on the moon, bumped into a janitor. You know, he said to the janitor, you know, what do you do here? And the janitor said, look, I'm putting a man on the moon, right? Realizing that every single person, no matter how big or how small, plays a vital role in a very singular and galvanizing point. And I think that that's what is really important, I think, to, to our industry, is to be able to have that North Star that we can all sort of aim towards. I'm keen, Tim, to get to, to know you a bit better. Perhaps you could start by just telling us a little bit of your story. I'm an engineer by trade. Uh, I went to Macquarie Uni uh, and I studied engineering, a Bachelor of Technology in Optoelectronics. What got you into engineering? So I had a, um, a passion for it and I was finishing uh, high school and I thought, look, this is a brand new degree and I really enjoyed it. And um, I remember going to my uh, science and uh, my physics teacher and asking him, is it possible that I can pick up four unit physics? And he said, look, no, sorry, that, that subject doesn't exist. But I just loved it so much. So I was reading science books on the side. And then when they said, look, there's a new engineering degree at Macquarie Uni and it's all about lasers and fiber optics, I said, that's perfect for me. So I did that degree and it was was great. Loved that degree. And realized very quickly uh, in my last year when I was with the CSIRO doing a sandwich course where you're working half time and then you're studying half time, that how poor we are as a country in engineering. Great examples are things like Wi-Fi, something that we created through a CSIRO. And imagine if we could clip the ticket and we can get one cent on every megabyte transferred at the moment, how rich we would be as an industry today. Or fiber optics themselves, which was created with uh, Melbourne University um, and uh, was sold to French Telecom. And we sell it for a million dollars, hypothetically, and then they go and lay cables in the sea and sell it for a billion dollars. 
So we weren't great at monetizing our engineering feats. And so I realized that my path, whilst I was passionate and I really am passionate about engineering, is going to be in something different. So I got into programming because part of the work I was working on at CSIRO was working physically with the lasers. And then I had to work with a computer to try and download the signals from the lasers and then process uh, large data sets. And this is sort of back in 1994, showing my age now. And at that stage, they said, okay, great, terrific. You've got a, a gift for, for programming as well. So I said, this is fantastic. And back in these days, there wasn't a lot of programming out there. Right. So it's easy to be gifted when there's only like 10 people doing it. So you got to start somewhere, right? That's right. So it was good fun. And then two guys from who work over at Zenith Optimedia at the time and had a tiny client called Telstra. Um, who said, uh, can you build us an ad server? And I've said, look, I've got no idea what an ad server is. I don't know what an impression or a click is. This is before the IT bubble. So they, they passed me a large check and said, get cracking. So I did my great Aussie spirit of rolling up my sleeves. I bought a copy of SQL 6.5 and Visual Basic and went into my garage and I wrote the Facilitate ad server. You taught yourself to code. Yeah, yeah, from scratch. So I wrote the ad server um, and they were thrilled. You built an ad server? So yes, I built the ad server. Right. So that was great and that was working well. And neck and neck, that ad server and DoubleClick were going head to head for, for dominance in terms of the first to reach, you know, a million ads a month, a billion ads a month, and just keep on growing in terms of size and scale. And then unfortunately, um, Google came knocking and then they bought the wrong company. They didn't buy our company, uh, Facilitate. <laughs> they bought the wrong one. They bought uh, DoubleClick. They gutted. Absolutely. So after that, um, they said, right, terrific. What can we do next? We obviously can't compete with Google head-to-head. So they said, look, go back to the drawing board. We need a campaign management system, something to try and get rid of the manual toing and froing of emails and faxes to try and sign off insertion orders. So I said, okay. Um, so I went back to my same garage. This time it was a copy of SQL 2000 and it was .NET. So technology had increased at least. And uh, three months later, we had a working prototype. And I say prototype in inverted commas here of Symphony. So you learned another, another language. Another set of languages and another challenge. Um, we pivoted and I think they did a very good job pivoting at that right time which was great. And then we went to, they said, look, you, I was the, came on board as the CTO of the company. Um, and in 2007, um, we said, look, we've got an opportunity to go and sell this product uh, overseas. I was based in Stockholm. And while I was there, I'd travel clockwise around the continent and I'd go down to Germany and Austria and Switzerland and uh, the Netherlands and England and back again. And I would stop in to the five holding groups, as many of those as I could in each one of those capital cities. And I'll be taking our ad serving product and the product for uh, campaign management. So both the, the Symphony product and the ad serving product into each one of those. And we picked up a lot of traction with Group M. So that went really well. And that was my foray into Group M and a bit more into media life. And at that stage, I bumped into a guy uh, called uh, Dr. Mark Greether, um, who's now come on board as the chief executive uh, chairman of Seismic. And he was telling me about programmatic. And I remember sitting in a coffee shop in, in Dusseldorf saying to him, but is it really real time? Uh, my engineer's had on going, well, this is the speed of light and this is fiber optics. And this is how I'm going, you have to put your servers in the same data center as their servers to make it work. And he says, yeah, that, that's what they're doing now. And at that stage, it all clicked and I went, right, if that's programmatic and that's really what's happening and these servers are now talking to servers doing this, I want to be in on that. 
and um, I moved back from Stockholm with my lovely family back to Sydney um, and then we sort of started again here and I came on board as the Director of Operations at Zaxxis and I was there for sort of two and a half years and then my then boss, who's now the uh, CEO of IPG, Danny Bass, said, look, can you move up to the group level and look at that, use that sort of engineering background to kick the tires on the sort of 250-ish ad tech companies in Sydney and check which ones are the right ones for our clients. Fantastic. So from self-taught coder to corporate digital tire kicker. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, if I had to have one sort of uh, job title, I'd say it's tire kicker. What have you learned from kicking tires mm. whilst you've been in the group Emerald? Jeez, it's so funny. Um, there's so many things. Um, I, I'd say that the uh, snake oil charmsmen are out there and, and sometimes they don't even know that they're selling snake oil. They, they, the salespeople go overseas and they come back with code or technology and they think that they've cracked They've split the atom. They think they've got something that everybody needs, not really realizing that, well, A, there's a, a, about six or seven other companies have all got the same thing. B, there's a bit of a discrepancy between what you think the technology can do and really what it, what it really can do. Um, and then, uh, C that, and this is the big one is a lot of the technologies don't drive any strategic value. So yes, they might work well on a specific campaign and might get a good ROI or a good click-through rate or whatever, but it doesn't hold a lot of strategic value to media agencies uh, in, in, in the ability to integrate with other uh, data points. And the ad tech world haven't quite figured out that it's the interactions which are more important than the technology itself. Right. You mentioned... Just slightly in passing, the term programmatic continues to be a hot and, and more important topic. And my own observation is, is that it's been a space where whether you're in an agency or an advertiser or a publisher in years gone by, it was, well, those guys in the corner can, can deal with that. And now it's becoming more and more mainstream. Firstly, what does it mean? I'm still trying to figure it, figure it out. And I get different answers depending mm. on, on who I talk to. So it'd be great to, to hear it from, from you as someone who, is rooted in the space and knows so much about it. And um, I guess linked to that, let's talk a bit about how it's evolving, where it's come from, where it is now and where you think it's heading. So you started off this podcast with a reference to a movie that you liked that you saw recently. So I'm going to go back to a movie that I liked that I saw a long time ago, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Fantastic. Yeah, great movie, right? So in that movie, um, there's one particular scene when Ferris and his friend Cameron and the girlfriend who's stunningly gorgeous, Sloane Peterson. All <laughs> you smile as you say oh, that. she's she, absolutely gorgeous. They go to the, I think it's the Chicago Stock Exchange, and they're sitting up um, on a row of observer benches looking down into the bullpit, looking at these, um, this, this exchange. Now, the olden days of uh, finance trading, you had buyers and sellers. And because it was such a large crowded room, they ended up coming up with their own sort of semaphore to do trading, where it was an open hand representing sell and a closed hand representing buy. And then the other hand was how many units. Always wondered you, what you, they were doing. I never is, knew. Yes, this, this was the semaphore. So, so each sign meant something specific. That's right. Right. So you could be on the other side of the room to me and I'd be holding up one hand, flashing of how, whether I want to buy or sell and you'd be doing the other one. And then your other hand would be how many units you want to buy or sell. That's the way it used to be. So in the Mad Men days, when you're buying out a home or you're buying 
billboards or whatever, it was that same sort of thing. Pick up the phone. You know, I want to go and buy the homepage takeover of you know, yahoo.com. You're kidding. You know, it's, it's going to cost you, you know, twice as much this month or for whatever reason. And it was very, very, very manual and lots and lots of paperwork and lots and lots of people involved. If you go down to the stock exchange now, you don't have all these people. In fact, it's dead quiet. It's probably about as quiet as a library. Same thing's happening in media. So we've now got computers selling a, a homepage slot on you know, yahoo.com uh, versus a computer wanting to buy that on, you know, whether it's through a Group M or it's through IPG, it doesn't matter. On average in Australia, there are 43 uh, buyers of inventory for every one seller. So there are 43 DSPs currently activating in Australia on display and video, et cetera. Right. So that's a very frantic pace of, of transactions. And there's, there's, there's a parallels are striking between fintech of how that's evolved from the trading days of, of uh, stock exchange and programmatic media, how that's evolved from being phones and emails and faxes to this buying and selling between computers. That bit I get, which is almost this sort of principle of anything that can be automated mm. will be automated. There are some myths around that that perhaps we can uh, address, which is things like... Um, uh, it's, it's where you put dirty uh, in inventory or, or lowest common denominator. Right. And it's not like that, is it? I think. No, that was, I mean, that was a myth. And I think we did a bit of a myth busting series in around 2015, 2016 around the common myths of programmatic being low click through rates, uh, high brand safety issues, um, high amounts of ad fraud. And it's just better to lay it out there and say the reasons why this came about is because of mostly, be, I feel, because of overseas uh, sellers of inventory. So when you turn on the engine to a, like a large programmatic buying company, so this is you know, AppNexus, this is DBM, this is MediaMath, these, these large entities, when you turn that on, you have access to 263 sellers of media. Now, of those 263 sellers of media, only about 12 of them actually exist in Australia, have an office. So, for example, SpotX um, is a seller of inventory and they have uh, an office here in, in Sydney. So does Rubicon, so does Pymatic, so does well, recently OpenX. And these companies here are people you can go and talk to about the quality of inventory. And I was talking to someone, uh, it's actually Kieran Norris, who's now over in uh, Amex. Right. He said this to me one day. He said, look, if there's no eye, eye contact and there's no IO contact, and I love that and I quote him for that because it's, it's great. So we looked at these 263 sellers and when you filter them by geography and you say, I'm only going to go and buy inventory based on I can actually make eye contact over a cup of coffee with the person who's selling it to me, it comes down to about 12 so then if you go and turn off, which is what we did, um, the 251 of them um, that are, or whatever the number was, based on overseas, then what you find is that all the issues about uh, ad fraud and uh, brand safety immediately died away. And we were thrilled by that. And we sort of hit the nail on the head. I think it was November 2014 uh, when that happened. Right. So basically all of those issues have all been addressed and for, for for you it sounds like you've absolutely moved on and you moved your clients on with you did do they all 
generally tend to get that? that- yeah, look, I mean, we had one uh, client, and let me say all being addressed sort of in, in uh, an asterisk uh, and a footnote on that because I know there are listeners who are saying, hang on, but there still are issues with brand safety and there right. still are issues with fraud, et cetera, and, low, and low click-through rates. Yes, there are. But what we're, we're doing now is the quantity or the quantum of those issues has been vastly decreased. It was much, much higher before uh, when you're dealing with an exchange out of Krakow, Poland, who is just reselling waterfall inventory from websites that you've never even heard of before because they seem to have an Australian eyeball looking at that website. That's where the majority of the issues are. So we got rid of those. Now we're work- we're still working on it and we'll continue to improve it, but now we're working on the minority in comparison quantitatively than before. So that was just the, the, the first point. And is there some advice here for clients, which is, is it around making sure your agencies have that eyeball contact with some of the key vendors just to be absolutely sure? Yeah, if you're working, if you're buying media from an exchange and that exchange is operating overseas, then be very, very careful because what we tend to find is that the Australian exchanges seem to work to a higher degree of standard with brand safety and ad fraud, and you don't want to get caught up with the the, the issues uh, with with overseas exchanges. It's interesting. Uh, again, a, probably a, a personal observation, maybe a, an oversimplified observation. When you were talking about your own um, career and how you got to where you are, you you taught yourself um, programming, and then later on, you you evolved. One of the things that I think sometimes is misunderstood is that all of the tech is constantly evolving. It it might start off really basic. Here we are in Yahoo's offices having this conversation. And I remember the first time um, I used a search engine or Mm. I used email and and what that experience was like then in the late 90s right through to, to, to now. How is all of the technology that's underpinning programmatic kind of changing? And where, where would you say it is on that, on its journey? Is it, has it gone from being kind of quite basic to being pretty good to being, is it going to be super advanced? How would you try and bring that? That's to a life? great question. Um, I'd say I caught up with uh, Brian O'Kelly, the uh, CEO of AppNexus uh, last year, and he's adamant about the word programmatic falling out of the dictionary. And I think it's great that we try to stop a lot of the buzzwords as well. Um, I put a piece out recently on LinkedIn saying, does artificial intelligence really exist inside um, our world of digital advertising? And I'm I've heard of a couple of companies that do it, but I've not seen any. Um, some of them might have great sophisticated algorithms and great machine learning, but does it really have artificial intelligence? So a lot of these buzzwords, I think it's very good for you to stop and ask yourself. If it, if it really doesn't feel right, then don't say it. With programmatic, it's just really going to be the new way of doing digital media. So we can probably stop saying programmatic pretty soon and just say it's just back to digital again and every part of digital will be permeated with programmatic. But if I was to try to put a bet on the direction that programmatic's moving, so I think there's a couple of big bets. One of them is the um, centralization of technology. So a lot of technologies are starting to merge now, a bit like an accordion, how they, they pull apart and they come back together again. And, and I think we're on that um, collapse cycle now, not collapse being bad, but collapse being an integration of technologies. A natural sort of economic evolution. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think consolidation of businesses. The consolidation makes a lot of sense as right. well. So Is that linked to your, you write about the bloodbath 
is that are the two linked or oh, look, is that separate? Look, absolutely. I, I think I, I do write about the ad tech bloodbath. Um, <laughs> that seems to have caught on, which yeah, is does. great. I see that regularly. You see that regularly? Okay, good. To be um, a standalone company at the moment and pure play and say we're not in, we are a hundred percent by yourself, you're sort of shooting yourself in the foot. Um, so I caught up with a number of different DSPs a few years ago. And these are the, uh, the Quantcast of the world and the rocket fuels of the world. And a couple of years ago, these guys were saying, we're going to be a hundred percent self-service and we're never going to be managed service. Now they're all making a quick reshuffle to say, Hey, hang on. We need to have a, an MVP, uh, in market for our self-service tool, knowing that that has to be the way to go. And I think technologies, um, and I got this great analogy for you of being f- technologies falling into one or two different categories. Not Te- another film metaphor. No, no, this one's, this <laughs> one's not, but tell me how you, how you like this one, Go VJ. On. A technology, ask yourself, is the ad tech company that you work for, is it, uh, is it an orange or is it a mango? When you slice them in two, you see that one of them has a massive seed and the other one, an orange, has a very small seed. And I see so many companies have that same sort of thing when you kick the tires hard and you slice them open, the seed representing the core of the technology, meanwhile, the pulp representing the services that surround the technology. And so ask yourself, is your company a mango? Does it have a really strong, massive core of technology surrounded by a thin layer of service designed to support your clients? Or do you actually have a really, really small amount of technology like a, like a, an orange and surrounded by a massive layer of service? And there's a couple of tests out here that I could challenge any ad tech company who's listening. The first one is, do you have what's referred to as the one to one to one ratio? For every one feature you can do in self-service, is one feature you should offer in managed service, but is also one feature you should have in your API to do as completely automated service. And I think that that's a key thing that your technology needs. If, if you have to say to clients, oh no, that's something I have to set up in the back end, that's a strike. If you say, no, we haven't developed the API yet, but we're going to get to it soon, that's a strike towards your company. If you say, look, our company has got a great set of, of uh, engineers, as a lot of companies do, but you say your engineers are only 25% or 10% of, of your overall workforce, that's a strike against your, your company. From that perspective, you need to have a very strong, a flourishing engineering culture in your company for it to be that mango and for it to thrive moving forwards. Does that sort of make sense? It does. And there I was thinking when I think of those two fruits, which one makes the best daiquiri, but you <laughs> create a whole new, um, yeah, no, it does make sense. What I think might be useful and, and is actually visualizing that because I think that could be really, really powerful. And, and it works with um, our mission around, um, simplifying things. So, so thank you for that. Let's, um, wrap up with one final question, which is 2017 and what you think that holds for our industry, particularly in the, uh, in the ad tech sphere. What are your hopes and fears for this year? Um, I'd like to see programmatic TV really kick off. Um, I've got a lot of faith in technologies which are uh, server side more so than client side um, I think that server side ad insertion I think is is going to be big this year I think data visualization is going to be huge uh, it proves that we're, we're working well when you've got a, a great data dashboard to to make it work I'd say the 
what I call BAV, B-A-V, Brand Safety, Ad Fraud and Viewability. That's a, a commodity and we need to move that to being just a commodity. Um, I'm with you there. Yeah, so I think that there's going to be a, a lot of big things happening this year. You'll still see a lot more consolidation of the market. I think you'll see a lot of those tier two and tier three programmatic companies uh, retreat from this market and head back to a regional support level only. Uh, and I think you'll see a lot more um, of that vertical stack between the buyer and the seller of inventory coming together to offer benefits to, to clients. And lastly, but not leastly, is this finally, I think we'll really move away from ad tech metrics, IMS clicks and acquisitions and things like that, and move towards MarTech metrics and talk about, did I flip more hamburgers for this client, having more bums in seats, selling real solutions that really matters and stop hiding behind ROIs. Tim, thank you so much for coming in. Self-taught coder and professional tech tire kicker. Um, it's been brilliant to have you. Thank you for two great stories that stick in my mind in terms of how we simplify this industry. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's a good <laughs> excuse to go and watch that again. And then the metaphor between oranges and mangoes. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you, Vijay. Really appreciate being here. The IAB's Simplify and Inspire podcast. For more information, visit iabaustralia.com.au.